Hi, welcome to the Prison Project podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Raskin. This is a podcast about criminal and social justice issues from prison reform to ethics and everything in between. Available on WDIY 88.1 FM and on WDIY.org. Welcome to episode five. Today on the show, we have Judge Craig Daly as our guest speaker. Judge Daly, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Um, Judge Daly was mentioned in our last episode of You've Been Listening with public defender Rory Driscoll, who works with Daly on a day-to-day basis at Northampton County Court of Common Pleas. After going to Lafayette, which we're rivals, by the way, I go to Lehigh. Um, he earned I his, showed up anyway. Yeah, you did. <laughs> he earned his law degree from Villanova, and now he practices as a recovery court and mental health court judge. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day is like and also how you became a judge? Well, let, let's do the, the, the second part of that question first. I graduated from Lafayette College, as you mentioned, a degree in economics and business, then worked for a family business for a period of seven years. I got involved in local politics, uh, lost my first election uh, as running for mayor of Penargel, ran for borough council and served on borough council, and that's what really served as the impetus to go to law school. Uh, I then uh, enrolled at Villanova University School of Law uh, seven years after I graduated from Lafayette, and mm-hmm. by the time I graduated from Villanova three years later, there was a 10-year uh, difference between my undergraduate degree and my, my law degree. I then started practicing law, had an, still had an interest in politics, ultimately ended up running for the state legislature. Uh, I served in the state house for uh, seven terms. Uh, mm-hmm. four, I was in my 14th year when I, when I left. Um, representing the 138th legislative district in Northampton County. Uh, initially, it was Northampton and Monroe counties, but then um, finally all in Northampton County. And then decided to run for, for judge in 2009 uh, and was elected and started my first 10-year term in January of 2010 and was just recently retained in November of uh, 2019 for an additional 10-year term. So my career path really wasn't focused on being becoming a judge yeah. just that's where I ended up wow. um, but I think that that all of my uh, work history has lended itself to to um, providing the a, a good solid background uh, for the issues that we we see and, and have to decide on as a as a judge in, at the county level yeah wow and I guess my the first part to my question to kind of like a day-to-day basis. Uh, our our days, we have, a, we have a general calendar in Northampton County. So our nine judges that sit on the court of common pleas hear all types of cases. Mm-hmm. So depending upon the day of the week and the week of the month, that can determine what type of cases that we uh, hear. Um, every Wednesday, we have a miscellaneous court, which uh, is any matter that's less than 15 minutes. And uh, that can range from, you know, disputes involving uh, custody, uh, divorce, uh, business transactions, criminal matters like parole and, and probation uh, violations and, and the like. Right. So, and then, you know, if we have a criminal week, obviously we'll, we'll sit in criminal court, could have a criminal uh, jury trial and uh, civil weeks. We could have a civil jury trial like involving perhaps a medical malpractice case or an automobile accident. Uh, and then our non-jury weeks are, are primarily child custody matters and issues involving children and youth uh, such as involuntary termination of parental rights. Wow. And when I called you to ask you to interview with me, you had said that you uh, just deferred someone from state prison. So that's also, you know, you're so influential in, in your day-to-day basis, even though it's kind of in a mix of other things that are just kind of seemingly more mundane, like divorce and family right. law. But there's some really impactful stuff. And, and, and there is. And, and that's one of the 
and every Thursday I spend um, in our recovery court. It used to be called drug court. It's now recovery mm-hmm. court. And then every other uh, Thursday we also have our mental health court in addition to our recovery court, which is a, um, our, our mental health court is a diversionary court that diverts people from the criminal justice system, assuming they, uh, c- they complete our program, that their charges are dismissed. And our recovery court is dealing with either people that are repeat offenders and uh, are then sentenced to complete drug court as part of their sentence, or they're just repeat offenders on probation or parole, and they keep going in and out of prison primarily because mm-hmm. of their addiction. Right. And we heard from Rory a bit on the last episode about the public defender side of what recovery court and mental health court is like. But from your perspective, from the front of the courtroom, what's that like for you? Well, the important thing about recovery court is that we're dealing with with people in many cases that have been longtime addicts. Mm -hmm. They failed to to stay clean. And because of their addiction, they end up incarcerated again because they have positive uh, tests for for drugs and alcohol. The the focus of our, our program for the most part, is high-risk, high-need individuals. Here again, people that have had repeated uh, criminal infractions, have been in and out of prison, and mm-hmm. have, have gone long periods of time without any clean time. Mm-hmm. So we're offering, our, our program is, is a, a program that we, we deal with every facet of the individual's life, and we, we basically require them to become responsible citizens and support their families and be law-abiding citizens. And we, we, we require people to, to have jobs, pay their fines and costs, support their families, and in the same, same, uh, uh, at the same time, remain in, in recovery. Do you see the recovery courts as an overall success? Our, 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 our success rate isn't 100% by any means. However, the recidivism rate, as far as individuals in our program, as opposed to those that aren't in a, a specialty court like recovery court, is much higher. Yeah. Sure. I mean, um, this is what I was speaking with Rory about, that each case kind of can't be treated the same, and having s- the same solution for every case is just you're not going to have the same results. It's everyone's kind of an individual right. in, their, in their own problems, and needing, that's why we need recovery court. That's why we need mental health court. But um, in the future, do you see any other divisionary programs being implemented? Or I know that there are counties that have standalone veterans courts, mm-hmm. And we have looked at that. Uh, the problem with a county of, of our size, which is a little over 300,000 people, we don't have the volume of veterans right. to, to have a standalone court. However, we have veterans in both of our courts, our mental health court and our recovery court, and they access services through the Veterans Administration. So certainly we, we, de- we uh, assist veterans in the issues that they may be having. We just don't have the, the numbers to, to right. uh, justify a standalone court. Yeah, and there's plenty of overlap, I'm sure, with veterans who also have drug issues and also mental health right. issues based on their and, s- you know cases where you know PTSD and yeah. and uh, which leads to to drug and alcohol absolutely um, addiction and, and the like. So yeah, they're and they can be very complicated cases. Have you ever lost sleep over deciding on a verdict? And what helps in your decision making process? I can't say that I've ever lost sleep over a verdict. I've certainly thought longer and harder on some decisions than others. But basically, you know, there's a, there's a whole host of, of reasons why you ultimately reach the decision that you do, uh, some of which you, you, know, you learn in the courtroom, um, others what you've learned in, in life. And, and that's why I think with my background, uh, you know, working in, in, in a blue-collar job and then being involved in, in, in you know, local politics mm. and the state legislature where you, you deal with a whole 
a host of, of issues. Uh, and you also deal with people, and that's you know, our, our job is a people business, and, and I think that uh, experience helps you with decisions that, um, you know, you, you can look at the person that's before you, especially in a, in a criminal matter, when you're imposing a sentence, and take into consideration the information about, that you know about that individual, but also your experience in other aspects of life. Mm. You have to be good at reading people and just kind of picking up on those nuances. Th th of, that's correct. Yeah. I, is there one case in particular that's ever affected you? I mean, I, I can't really point to any one case, mm. um, but, but I can say that the, the most troubling cases are those involving children, um, either right. you know, children that are abused at the mm. hands of their parents, uh, children that are neglected because of perhaps their parents are um, in active addiction, Right. Uh, termination of parental rights, where you're taking children away from parents. Um, those are probably the most uh, difficult cases. Of um, aside from, you know, in the criminal cases where you ha you know you have victims that that have been victimized by by uh, a criminal defendant, um, and it could be a, a, you know murder case where obviously you know you you feel their their pain as well. Yeah, and the responsibility of those decisions. It, I mean, it must weigh on you for. Me to just even listen to that it feels like a lot um yeah, and it and it doesn't and that's why you know there yeah. are times at the end of the day where while you're not physically exhausted <laughs> you, you certainly are mentally exhausted right yeah especially after so many years and just all of the cases kind of accumulating but and has mandatory sentencing ever caused you to charge someone with a verdict that you saw was too harsh or too lenient the issue of mandatory sentencing is interesting because when i was in the legislature in many cases bills involving mandatory sentences was good politics because mm. you know, the constituents uh, that you represented in many cases liked mandatory minimums for certain crimes. Right. Sitting as a judge now, mm. um, on the other side, I look at mandatory minimums in, 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 in many cases where it removes the discretion of the trial court judge where you know we, we consider a whole host of reasons why we give people the sentences that we do. Mm. Um, but when you have a mandatory minimum imposed, it, it removes all discretion. Now, I think they're appropriate in, in some cases. Just for instance, our, 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 our driving under the influence laws, there's mandatory minimums for those infractions. Uh, there's also mandatory minimums if you're involved in a fatal, fatality, in, in, a, in an accident that involves a fatality and you're under the influence. There's mandatory minimums mm. on those. Um, infractions, and I think that in that a that arena, it makes a lot of sense. There are other instances where, like possession of a of a, of a weapon and commission of a crime, uh, oftentimes there's mandatory minimums, and then there's, there's always a question of well, whose weapon was it? Did it have it? You know, if it was in, if it wasn't on the per on the individual's person, it was in the room they were in. So I mean, that can lead to some results that might be um, unfair. And I think that what you're seeing from a pub public policy standpoint is that were, were moving away from mandatory minimums. It was a big rage back 15 years ago or so. I know when Governor Ridge came into office here in Pennsylvania, they had a special session on crime, and a lot of the uh, statutes that were passed then included mandatory minimums. In the, at the federal level, there was three strikes and you're out, mm -hmm. and, and you end up with life sentences for nonviolent crimes. Right. Um, not that, you know, in some instances they may be warranted, but... But without having, or not, without having the ability to look at the totality of the circumstances, 
and just saying, well, if this person does this, they get, if they do X, they get Y. It just, I think that discretion is important uh, when it comes to, to sentencing. Right. It's the same idea as the diversionary courts because it's treating each case kind of individually instead of just saying, okay, we're going to put this mandatory sentence on no matter what you do. And if it was violent or nonviolent, it doesn't really matter. And I feel like when you group so many people together with the same punishment, it's not going to be Mm. successful in terms of seeing lower recidivism or to see people be successful in society afterwards. Because, you know, a sentence has a punitive aspect to it, which is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it's it, it's an issue of public safety mm-hmm. uh, that, that a judge has to be cognizant of. And also, the, the fact is that, at least at, at the county level especially, but most people that go to state prison, that they're not going to be there forever. Right. Um, so you have to think about the rehabilitative aspect of, of their lives as well, because you don't want people to reoffend and have and just continue to, to come in and out of the system, mm-hmm. um, at some point in time, you like to see them become productive. Right. And that's the whole point. I feel like a lot of people see prisons as like, you did something bad, go to jail, when it should be more of, we have to put you in jail to rehabilitate you, and eventually you come out. Right. And for... Um, and, and, one thing, and one thing you can't lose sight of, though, is you can't lose sight of these crimes where you know, there's victims. Right. And so you have to, you know, you have to t- take into consideration how it impacted the victim too. So that's and that's the punitive aspect, absolutely, of it, as well as the restitution piece as well. I just had uh, several home improvement fraud cases this past week, where contractors defrauded uh, homeowners mm-hmm. and uh, you know accepting payment and then never returning back for the work. When you know these people have expended a great sum of money, and uh, and these, and these individuals stole stole the money, and the repairs still need to be done. Right. So uh, it's important that restitution piece is very important. And, and the fact is, in many cases, the, the restitution may never be paid. Because but, they used um, the money already or they spent it already? Exactly. Yeah. And, and But the, the thing is, that's the important part of, of the sentence and the supervision is to hold these people accountable and, and hopefully make the victim as whole as you possibly can. Right. Yeah. I'm curious to know your thoughts on what problems you've seen throughout your years in our criminal justice system and need to be changed moving forward. Well, what I've seen from, from the beginning, and I just finished, as I said, my, my uh, 10th year, we're seeing more focus on uh, the costs of, of incarceration, the costs of, of uh, addiction, mm-hmm. and, and looking at ways to deal with these issues a little what is differently. The, what little, is the cost of incarceration? It's it's over a hundred hours a day at the at the uh, county level. Oh, wow. uh, the state level is probably twice that. Hmm. And one of the statistics I, I I cite when I speak to groups and and it's mind boggling is that on any given day there are eighty thousand people incarcerated in Pennsylvania. Just Pennsylvania. So wow. there's thirty thousand or so in the state prison system, and then in the in the county jails there's another fifty thousand people. So that's uh, basically the population the size of Bethlehem mm. uh, being in jail. And um, so, money. so what what I've seen also is is, is reforms in terms of of bail. Mm-hmm. Every every morning at six a.m. we have a pretrial officer in the prison interviewing individuals that were um, arrested overnight to establish to do a, a risk assessment and then establish bail for those individuals, with the idea that that those low risk um, defendants are are released on on bail 
um, to reduce the, the, the prison population. Um, because what, what has happened uh, in the past and, and still continues to happen today is that you, you uh, establish a cash bail mm-hmm. on, uh, on, a, on, say, a nonviolent offender, and they end up languishing in jail because they can't post even nominal cash bail. Um, and, their ca- and their charges may, uh, at, at the time they, they're addressed, they've already uh, spent more time in jail than, than the charge warrants. Right. Without so being that, infected that, at, at some point, you know. So that's just a, just a waste of, of resources. When, when cash bail was implemented, I know it was with the purpose of bringing people back to court so that they would show up for the court date and right. that things could be efficient instead of, you know, losing people, letting them go right. free and that sort of thing. Do you see a solution to avoiding that problem? I mean, in terms, now we have so much technology, we right. could, you know, even put like ankle brace, bracelets on people, that and, sort of and, thing. And, and we use, uh, we don't use so much ankle bracelets as far as, well, we have for, for bail in certain cases, mm-hmm. but yes, you have that, that technology in terms of uh, someone that says a repeat offender um, and w- with crimes involving alcohol addiction, we can put camp bracelets on them that read read their alcohol level oh, wow. every you know all day long. So, when, so sure. it can be it can be monitored at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that tool as well. We use that in our drug court program too. But between the GPS and cam, uh, those are two safeguards that people that maybe might not necessarily be released without those tools right. could be. Um, but you know the fo- the purpose of bail is to is to um, encourage not encourage, but to require the, uh, the person to appear at future court dates. Mm-hmm. But it's also a, a, a way to protect the public. So if you have a, a serious uh, uh, crime that, that occurs, it could be a murder, it could be a serious assault, and the public safety requires that individual to remain in prison pending their, their charge being disposed of, um, then that's why either no bail set or, or a real high bail set because um, the public safety issue outweighs that person's freedom. And that makes sense based on the crime. But for me, the one thing that bothers me about cash bail is it feels like almost a two-tier system now when we're talking about nonviolent crimes or crimes like that where public safety really isn't a question. Uh But, you know, when bails are set extraordinarily high for people who then end up just deciding to stay in jail until they do get their court date. But people who have the means, and I I read it was a medium of $10,000 as an average bail that's kind of a lot for people who are living yeah. on. Well, I, I think in, in Northampton County, I think the the actual cash cash piece of that is, is lower. You yeah. might have a ten thousand dollars, ten percent. So right. yeah, it's with thousand dollars, but in, in a lot of instances, a thousand dollars is 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 not, a lot for people. Right, it's not uh, achievable. Right, so, and that's where it would feel so great to have us harnessing the technology that we've right. created to 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 solve that and have everyone kind of. Be on an equal playing field in right. front of the and, law, and, and you know, with GPS technology, obviously, put a bracelet on a on a criminal defendant. You can restrict where they go. Right. Uh, if they go outside of that envelope um, in the community, the the, the, the uh, device goes off, and you're, you're given a signal right away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're right. I mean, w- with with technology today, we can do a, a lot of those things. And uh, do you see that being implemented in the near future or just kind of hypothetical at this point? No, no. And we or use GPS being... technology now. In oh, fact, wow. In fact, um, individuals in our recovery court that are in certain aspects of that in our TCAP program, which is an intermediate punishment program, they're on restrictive uh, supervision for a period of time as part of their sentence. So mm-hmm. they have to do a period of, of, uh, 
time in prison, and then once they're released, they're released on electronic monitoring. Okay. So we keep that electronic monitor on them uh, till we're either that they're they're done with the restrictive portion of their sentence, or we feel comfortable that that they're safe in the community and yeah. we don't have concerns about them. But yeah, we use it. We use that now. That's great. Yeah. I hope that more counties and eventually mm-hmm. more people ended up yeah. end up following that because I've. I've been reading that in other parts of the country. That's really not true still today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, other, the other important thing is that we have that uh, pretrial officer in the prison at 6 a.m. doing the risk assessments. So we're getting to these cases. So he's in there, he's in there at 6 a.m. and we hear the case at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. So we're getting these cases right away. Um, and those individuals that can be released on nominal bail are released. Right. Uh, because, you know, when someone's picked up on a, on a, um, on, on a criminal charge, obviously, disrupts their life obviously the freedom's restricted uh they can't go to their jobs they can't so you really have to 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 be you know mind mindful of that in the appropriate circumstance but in some circumstances some some crimes it doesn't matter at all that mm-hmm. they should they're in the right place they're in prison but yeah. we just have to be uh it's all circumstantial smarter. exactly and then people end up spending a couple of days in jail and that's nothing for some people but for some people that's i lost custody of the kids i lost my job I don't have a home anymore, I'm evicted, that sort of thing. And so it's all circumstantial. That kind of feels like the theme of this podcast. That might be the name of it. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is circumstantial. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, any closing thoughts? Would you ever go back into politics? I I don't know whether I should answer that just in case my wife is listening to this uh, (laughs) program or not. But um, I mean, I still have an interest in politics Mm -hmm. and uh, whether that if the right opportunity arose, I might consider it. Um, obviously, in my current position, I can't be involved in politics at all. Um, and for a judge to, to be engaged in politics, they have to resign their position before they would uh, run for another position. So that's uh, you know, that's something I would have to, have to consider. But, so maybe I mean, in I, 10 years? I, yeah, I enjoyed, <laughs> I enjoyed you know, public policy discussions and debates uh, in Harrisburg. And um, you know, I, I, I follow it now as a spectator. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if it ever really gets out of your, your blood. <laughs> so. Well, maybe maybe after your next 10 years as a judge, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for coming here today. This was amazing. I loved having you, and thank you so much. Okay, thank you. It's my pleasure.